there's nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance, an economy of one. With Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. Got a special show today. Uh, today is the 20th anniversary of the TWA 800 disaster. Remember that 20 years ago, 1996? Uh, TWA flight took off from JFK and uh, essentially exploded in air. And uh, it's been been topic of a lot of discussions uh, since then. Well, today we're having Jack Cashel, uh, author of the new book, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. New book out. Uh, He'll be joining me uh, very shortly. And uh, we'll spend uh, a little time with him and talk about his findings and his data. And uh, everybody gets written off as a conspiracy theorist uh, talking about TWA 800. But uh, I think by the time the show's over today, you may have a different opinion. So Jack Cashel will be joining me uh, a little bit later. I thought it was appropriate for a couple of reasons to talk about TWA uh, 800 today. One, it's the 20th anniversary, and two, the the complicity, the cooperation of the mainstream media in the cover-up of uh, TWA 800 disaster uh, seemed appropriate uh, today. When you look at all that's going on, and how the media is sending out the narrative, sending out the messages that the elite, the powerful, the politicians want us to hear. It's it's even more interesting it, when you when you come across a a college student sometime that is um, majoring in journalism. Ask them why they're majoring. In journalism and I think you'll you'll find the answer to be interesting most of the time every journal journalist uh, major I've talked to says they want to become a journalist because they want to change things they want to change the world not really interested in reporting the truth Um, they want to change the world well when you look at all that's been going on the last week or so with um, uh, Hillary Clinton emails with uh, 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 Attorney General Lynch and her statements with President Obama and his statements, uh, especially about the, uh, uh, the the murdering of the Dallas police officers. Um, it, it's it's it, it's disquieting. 
to hear the narrative, the rhetoric. You know all these people talk to each other because they all say the same thing. Um, When Loretta Lynch comes out and tells Black Lives Matter group, don't be discouraged. When President Obama comes out and says that we are not nearly as divided as some people think, meaning you and me, um, they're encouraging that division. And there's going to come a time very soon when the people who are getting blamed for all this, I mean, Hillary came out and essentially blamed white people for what went on in Dallas. Um, you see all the people going on the Internet, YouTube, that kind of stuff, saying to kill policemen, uh, kill the pigs, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's going to come a time very soon, I think, when these people are going to start experiencing some serious, serious backlash. The, the, the rope of guilt wears awful thin, awful quickly. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. I don't feel guilty for what white people did in this country 200 years ago. Um, it's not my fault. I wasn't around. I'm not going to pay for their transgressions. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, as a country, we, we have had growing pains. We have had mistakes. We have things that, you know what, probably uh, not the best decision, the best action we could have taken as a nation. But I wasn't there. It wasn't my fault. I'm not going to pay retribution for it. Donald Trump said that the people have no vision. The people aren't looking forward. And I would agree with that. Not that I necessarily always agree with Donald Trump, because I don't. But because people are not looking forward People are not envisioning what their life can be and laying out a plan for it and taking action for it. The media is uh, perpetuating this narrative, uh, lapping it up like, like milk. Whatever the politicians in power say, the media takes it as truth, and anybody that goes against it is a racist, or in the case of TWA 800, a conspiracy theorist. And they dismiss it. They don't give you the truth. They don't give you the answers. They don't give you the raw data. They give you the narrative. And as you're going to see on this 20th anniversary, it's starting to wear thin. People are not buying it anymore. The Clintons have long been involved in this narrative. Clear back to TWA 800. That happened under Bill Clinton. And the cover-up, the misdirection, the narrative that uh, resulted out of that is classic politics. It's classic. And I, for one, am getting tired of it. I think it's time to stand up and find out what the truth is 
and find out what the facts are. Coming up next, Jack Cashill, author of the new book, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. I'm Gary Rathman. It's an economy of one. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Jack Cashill, has a PhD from Purdue University and is a weekly contributor to the WorldNet Daily website and executive director of Ingram's Magazine, a business publication based in Kansas City, Missouri. He's written for Fortune, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and The Weekly Standard. His books include If I Had a Son, Race, Guns, and the Railroading of George Zimmerman, Deconstructing Obama, and most recently, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. Jack, welcome to An Economy of One. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I read your book over the weekend, and uh, very interesting read, very readable for uh, a complex subject like this. Well, you know, that was my goal that I set out, because I am not an aviator, and Mm -hmm. nor am I a technician. And, and too much of the reporting on this has been written by people. I mean, it's useful for me as a secondary source, but uh, I wanted to write a book that people could, could actually follow. So I decided to tell the story of the researchers, the eyewitnesses, the family members, the whistleblowers, who over the last 20 years have refused to give up uh, in their pursuit of the truth. And I also wanted to tell the story from the other end. That is the people in the White House that night of July 17, 1996, mm-hmm. who when. TWA Flight 800 was blown up off the coast of Long Island, immediately hunkered down and devised a political strategy to deal with the uh, fallout from an incident this catastrophic. You know, it, it, it kind of disappointed me. I mean, I've followed this. I'm old enough to remember it, it happening at the time. And it, it's the, the way your book reads, it, the, the conspiracy is not about the plane blowing up. The conspiracy is more about the cover-up of the plane yeah. blowing up and it, it seems like the the powers that be the different agencies the the politicians want to put the conspiracy on on your thoughts on your data rather than on their actions no that's exactly right i mean today uh, the word conspiracy theorist is applied to people who a generation ago would have been called reporters <laughs> uh, reporters today uh, people who uh, wear the brand of reporters are essentially press agents for the White House, you know, mm-hmm. at, at least certain White Houses. And um, it's really, a, in a way, it's shocking. You know, in fact, the thing that shocks me most about this whole story is that the media just left it on the table for people like me to pick up and run with. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be telling this story. It should have been known 19 years ago, and the New York Times should have been, uh, you know, all over it. They, the truth should have been known within or, or weeks right. or days. Because there were so many witnesses, both on the shore, you know, and this is the south shore of Long Island, thousands of people saw this. Right. Or in the air traffic control center, where there was, you know, probably a dozen air traffic controllers who saw the tape. I've talked to them. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. The New York Times has talked to none of them. Now, now, you know, that was one of my questions. 
is why, you know, I, in, in recent events, in the last few weeks, we've seen uh, how the, the mainstream media uh, gets in bed with, with politicians and, and uh, gets uh, angry at other politicians and, and points right. out the bad things. It, this is 20 years ago. 20 years ago today this happened. Yeah. It was the media, it, it, it seems like the media, mainstream media getting in bed uh, with politicians is a modern event, but from from your book, this this happened way back when, also. Yeah, I would say if I had uh, to date a turning point in which the media became uh, the major media, that is, and you know we're talking New York Times, Washington Post, the, the right. and the people who pull their information from them, the networks, you know, Time Magazine, etc. I would date it to the November 1994 when the Republicans took over the House and the Senate. I mean, that was a shocking event in the mm-hmm. life of Washington. And I'm, I can't tell you how many times I heard Newt Gingrich compared to Adolf Hitler. You know? yeah. It's like uh, my uh, liberal friends and colleagues were, you know, my wife's a university professor, so I talked to these people, yeah. Um, yeah. were horrified. You yeah. know, and, uh, and from that moment on, because the first two years of the Clinton administration, the media had been fairly objective, it, struck, it strikes me in retrospect. Right. Uh, after that, no. After that, uh, Katie barred the door. You know, I mean, they had to cover the whole Monica thing because it was so sexy and so out there right. but even that was they recovered reluctantly you know and they made people like linda trip the villain and, right. you know right. ken star you know? uh, there, yeah. there are no whistleblowers anymore when there's a democratic <laughs> president well you know I, and i've talked to to uh young people who are in college and and majoring in journalism and i've always asked them why are you majoring in journalism and the answer is i want to make a difference and huh. it, it's no longer they want to report the report the news, the truth. The truth. Right. You know, it's, I want to make a right, difference. You know, that's exactly right. And in journalism schools, you know, we, as we saw, in, I live in Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah? Mm-hmm. You know, we saw at the University of Missouri where the journalists, professors of journalism, are out there, you know, knocking cameras out of people's hands. You know, right. Right. To to control the narrative is the um, the the uh, buzzword today. It's not about reporting the truth. It's about shaping the narrative. Absolutely. And that started in a major way. In 1996, and yet, Gary, they could not have gotten away with it in 1998 for one very good reason, and that is in 1996, only 12% of Americans were online, Mm -hmm. Uh, and by 1998, that number would be about 80%, and, you know, these people would have been talking to each other. So the New York Times, which owned the story, uh, reported on August 17th, a month after the crash, that they were, and they were getting their word directly from the FBI. I mean, it was like they were writing press releases for the FBI. Wow. They said there were only a handful of credible eyewitnesses. And the only one they would ever interview was a fellow who saw a bright white flash out of the corner of his eye, which suggested a bomb. Mm-hmm. It was a high explosion. It was a sophisticated witness. He just happened to look at the last second. Uh, at that time, however, we know now from a whole treasure trove of CAA documents that uh, two weeks before that, the uh, FBI missile team, which was trying to do a good job, met with the CIA analyst. The CIA involved itself on day one. They admit as much. And they told, the missile team told the CIA that they had already interviewed 144 excellent eyewitnesses, mainly professionals. The evidence was overwhelming. These are all FBI terms. And it was too consistent, again, a quote, to be anything but a surface-to-air missile, at which point the CIA boasts to his superior in these documents we found 
that he discouraged the FBI from going forward with this report. And two weeks later, when the New York Times uh, in, you know, talks to the FBI about eyewitnesses, it's obvious the CIA had its way. Right. Because right. these witnesses, the 144 excellent eyewitnesses, have been reduced to a handful of credible eyewitnesses. The most credible was a guy who saw nothing but this bright white flash. Mm. But this is uh, August 17th, and now the New York Times is selling the FBI's bomb theory. And on August 23rd, that culminates in a headline. It says, this is the headline above the fold, right? Prime evidence that explosive device destroys TWA 800 cabin, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so for weeks, then the New York Times talked about bomb, PETN found here, RDX found there, traces here, residue there, bomb, 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 bomb. And then there was another change in direction. And that occurred in mid-September when the MTSB decided, well, you know, it could be a mechanical malfunction after all. And let's rebuild the plane, and that'll take us after, until past November, and then we could decide what happened. And uh, they got away with it, because they, and that, but they had, to, they had to explain away all the bomb residue, right? right. The explosive yeah. residue, which could have come from a missile or a bomb. Right. Right. And to do that, if you recall in the book, it was probably the dirtiest exercise in the whole, uh, you know, investigation, mm -hmm. where they laid it off on a, a black police officer in St. Louis who allegedly, he and his dog Carlo, spilled explosive residue all over the plane during a, <laughs> uh, a training a run right. six weeks before the crash. But as was easily proved, the 800 plane was filled with passengers at the time this guy was doing it on an, in an empty plane. Right. Uh, and the composition of the materials and the placement of the materials in no way matched uh, those found on the plane by the uh, investigators. But the Times interviewed, uh, never interviewed the cop. I was the first right. one to talk to them six years after the crash. Oh, my goodness. They never questioned the FBI on the, uh, on the inconsistencies. Yeah. And that day, it was like September 20th, 1996, the investigation died. It was over. We're talking with Jack Casho, author of the book, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up and the conspiracy. I'm Gary Rathbun. It's an economy of one. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Today is the 20th anniversary of the TWA 800 disaster, and we're talking with Jack Casho, author of the book, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy, about his discoveries and, and what he wrote about in the book. Uh, Jack, why, you know, i got to ask, okay, why why the, the big deal, why the, the cover-up prior to... Uh, Clinton being reelected in November. I mean, he was running against Bob Dole. And he was running I, against Bob Dole, yeah. yeah I, I, I've met Bob Dole. He's a nice guy. But quite honestly, I think I could have beat him in an election. <laughs> you know, I don't think it was a, a big deal. I think it was Bob's turn to run, so they, they threw him on the ballot kind of thing. Why, why the big concern about uh, Clinton's reelection with TWA 800 out there? Gary, yeah, I was just going to say you or I could have beaten Bob Dole. And at the time this happened, uh, Clinton had a pretty comfortable lead over Dole. Right. But his perceived weakness, and Dick Morris was whispering in his ear every day during the campaign. Right. And um, 
uh, was his, uh, his role as commander-in-chief. It was his great vulnerability. And they panicked. That night, uh, you know, as I, I had a source within the White House that night who was, uh, you know, he had the highest level of security clearance since he carried the nuclear football for the president. Oh, wow. Okay. And while uh, the rest of the staff re- repaired to the situation room, which is the first time in history in a domestic plane crash, all the top-level uh, terror people re- you know, were uh, called back to the White House. Uh-huh. The uh, Clintons, Bill and Hillary, stayed up in the family residence, and with them, my source could identify only one other person, and that was the uh, incomparable uh, Sandy Berger, you know, who would uh, become famous in 2003 when he goes into the National Archives on four occasions and pilfers an unknown amount of documents and shreds them and walks away with a $10,000 fine. (laughs) We thought Hillary got off easy, you know? That's right. Um, you and I try that, and let's see where we are. We're, we're in Fort Leavenworth today. You know? oh, if we're lucky. If we're lucky. If we're lucky, yeah. right. Now, um, I, I suspect, I am, I am fairly confident, I'm speculating here, but I, I say with some confidence that, uh, that he was in there dealing with documents relating to 800 and related planes as bombs plots that, that were uh, brooded, being brooded about Washington at the time. You know, one other note, and this is to me the the most fascinating, bit, the most fascinating political political bit of the whole story, was the role of uh, Defense uh, Deputy Attorney General Jamie Gorelick. Mm-hmm. In 1995, Gorelick and the, and the number two people in the Clinton White House were the ones who got the hard assignments. The number one people are almost always figureheads, like Berger's boss Tony Lake, who wasn't even in the family quarters because that's political stuff. Right. Uh, uh, Gorelick's boss, Jan Arena, was a figurehead they had to work around. Uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the George, the, in the CIA, John Deutsch was a figurehead they had to walk around. Their man was George Tennant, a political guy. They were all in on this. But Gorelick in 95 writes the Wall Memo, the famous wall. It's often known as the Gorelick Wall, mm-hmm. the wall that prevented the CIA and the FBI from collaborating. Well, in 1996, it's she who is overseeing the TW-800 investigation. And during that investigation, the FBI and the CIA would collaborate for the next 16 months, uh, you know, on a, almost on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1997, when the investigation sort of put to bed, the Clintons reward Gorelick with the most plumb job in Washington, for which he has no qualifications, vice chairman of Fannie Mae. You know how much he'll make over the next six years? Uh, it's like $18 million or something. No, $25 million. $25 million. okay. <laughs> I knew it was a big and, number. So. Yeah, patriot that she is. She steps down to take one of five Democratic positions on the 9-11 Commission. Oh, my goodness. And there, people talk about the wall. Tennant talks about it. He said, yeah, mm-hmm. the greatest obstacle, the, the thing that prevented us from stopping 9-11 was this wall. We couldn't talk to the FBI. The FBI couldn't talk to us. And then late in that hearing, several weeks after Tennant speaks, uh, Senator John Ashcroft, the Republican uh, attorney general, says, you know, I have to tell you that the, the single – uh, one single greatest obstacle to us preventing 9-11 was the wall, the wall memo. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, in full disclosure, uh, compels me to tell you that the author of that memo was sitting on this commission. <laughs> now, and then the media, I, at least the Wall Street Journal and others on the right, exploded at this revelation. They didn't know one knew this, but they didn't know the real dirt on this, and that is that while this memo was in place preventing the CIA's and FBI cooperation, they were collaborating hand in glove on the subversion of the TW-800 investigation. I can prove this upside, left, right, and sideways from the CIA documents and FBI documents. 
It's not a secret. Mm-hmm. But the major media today do not want to know any more about it than they did 20 years ago. And that's the most scandalous part of this whole story. Now, you know, that begs the question, why? Why, why you know, why is the TWA 800 uh, cover-up, shall we say, relevant today? And why, why do this? I mean, people need closure. People want to know the truth. Right. People can handle the truth. They can handle the facts. Why? Why? Why, why the, the thing today? I mean, what, 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 what's to be gained by not getting the facts and the truth out there? Well, today, it's the same thing. Uh, ironically, there's a parallel to what happened in 1996, and that is, it were the truth to be told today, it would seriously jeopardize Hillary Clinton's run for the White House. Mm. She was there. She was involved. It's curious because it's been reported that it was at 3 a.m. that Clinton called Tony Lake, the national security advisor with the plans to do X, Y, or Z. Uh, and 3 a.m. was the time that Hillary mythologized in her a- anti-Obama ad in 2008. Who do you want to answer the phone at 3 a.m.? Right, you know? right. Well, truth be told, neither of you, honey. <laughs> but, uh, and now, you know, then we see what happened. I'll just give you a quick instance, Gary. In, the, in 2013, well, in, uh, a very good documentary came out called TWA Flight 800. They got a lot of positive attention because it featured a half a dozen whistleblowers and the documentary was not at all political. It didn't raise any political questions at all. Mm-hmm. And it also didn't say who fired the missiles, although the evidence was strongly pointing in one direction. Uh, and so I was asked to be on the a morning show, CNN's morning show with Alison Kozik to talk about it. Right, right. Because of my involvement in this thing, and they probably won't ask me back. But. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those five-minute deals. Where you get two minutes, their guy gets two minutes, whatever. So with a minute or so left, Kozik asked me. She goes, um, well, Jack, and very patronizing, as you'd expect. If it was a missile, who fired it, why did they fire it, and why the cover-up? And I said, well, Allison, uh, let me just talk about the cover-up in 60 seconds here. I said, this was Bill Clinton's Benghazi moment. I said, you know, he had a national security disaster take place on his watch just before a very winnable election, re-election. Mm-hmm. And he decided to kick the can down the road past November. And he realized that once you start kicking in one direction, you just start can't kick it back. Right. And then she said, well, thanks, Jack. I appreciate that. And then next day I, I pick up the uh, transcript. And my answer has been edited out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because one of the things that stuck with me is several things that stuck with me I want to share with you. But one of the things was uh, Clinton repeating to everybody he didn't want to have a Greg Norman moment. Yeah. And and that was his his code word for for, uh, losing it, losing his lead, losing the election right at the last minute. He, he right, just kept saying Greg Norman all the time. Greg, Greg Norman. That's, I got that uh, detail from a Bob Woodward book, and, you know, he has good sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Norman uh, blew the 1996 Masters, biggest joke in Masters history, right. up until maybe the 2016 Masters. <laughs> poor Jordan, I was broke my heart, Jordan, come on. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, and, that, and, and, and Norman was, of course, uh, Clinton's friend. He didn't want to right. see that happen. He didn't want to have a Greg Norman moment, and he, he would repeat it. You, see, you understand that Ron Brown died just at the same time as the, as the right. 96 Masters, by the way, in a plane crash. Uh, I also wrote a book about that. That's another right. story right. for another day. But, um, yeah, it was a, a desperate, desperate quest, uh, desperate to get the presidency back. And that involved raising literally hundreds of millions of dollars from foreign sources, which was uh, the greatest scan. I mean, uh, the greatest political, the dirtiest two political years in American political history were 95 and 96. One of the stories you, you talk about in the book that, that kind of struck me weird 
was you were talking about when uh, President Clinton and and uh, First Lady Hillary Clinton uh, met with some of the families and yeah. uh, talked to them. And this was shortly after the the plane went down, and Hillary went off to a private chapel to pray on her knees. Right. And, and I thought, you know what? For for a couple whose whose whole life is, revolves around optics, I would have paid yep. real money, real money to see Hillary on her knees praying. And, uh, well, you know, that's a good point. See, Richard Clark reports this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's the only one of uh, the insiders who talked about it. He lied about it, but he talked about it. The other uh, books are all mute. You know, a final uh, question. Um, what, what personal price have you paid for, for getting involved in this? I mean, you said yourself you're, it really wasn't your intent at the beginning, and the story just kind of grabbed you. and and uh took off and you did a documentary around this right. but what what you know i i in this day and age quite honestly i'd be afraid uh putting things out there for what's going to happen to me and my family i mean do you get irs audits every year and that kind of stuff uh, not yet i mean i, I think uh, for me you know since i don't have any first-hand information i'm just a chronicler of other people's resources okay. and reports uh Unlike my uh, sometimes running mate, James Sanders, who was, um, who was arrested and convicted of conspiracy, along with his wife, mm-hmm. for investigating it in 1997, uh, the worst odd sacrifice is my reputation. Uh, so, for instance, I used to write for the Weekly Standard, Fortune, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. And then um, when I made the video, uh, the Weekly Standard dropped me. They wouldn't talk to oh. me again. You know? And, uh, you know, and I... I contacted them again this year. This Weekly Standard is a very respectable, inside Washington sure. uh, conservative, very well-written pu- publication. Uh, I, said, I said to them, um, you know, in that line of my book and some of them are findings, and I got this terse little note back, no one here has any interest in this story, period, okay? <laughs> I'm a 16-year subscriber. Yeah. You know, I could have come off the street, you know, and I'm a 16-year subscriber and asked them to write a, about, a, you know, uh, you know, uh, garbage collection in washington dc and they would have at least answered me politely you know <laughs> that's incredible you know it's it's uh the reason i wanted to have you on was one it was a great book uh very easy read uh read it in two sittings and and couldn't hardly put it down but also i think it's relevant today not just from the cover-up of twa 800 but what the mainstream media does today i think the the cover-ups, the the misdirection, the lack of information, the dismissal of people that want to get the facts and the truth out there uh, is just accelerating today. And I think it's it's highly relevant um, what this story brings as to uh, uh, what uh, Washington thinks of us today. Yeah, Gary, you're absolutely right, and uh, and everyone like yourself who uh, you know takes this story seriously takes a hit on his reputation. You know, mm-hmm. because then, you know, someone's going to say, oh, he's a conspiracy theory. He's always talking about conspiracy stuff, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, mm-hmm. they don't want to know. They don't know anything. And they're comfortable attacking you, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely incredible. Well, we've been speaking with Jack Cashel, author of the new book, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. Jack, I wish we had uh, some more time, but uh, I'd like to have you back. We won't uh, send you a terse note saying we don't want to talk to you anymore. And uh, there's so many things in the book I'd like to uh, uh, continue the discussion. And uh, we're going to put it up on our website and Facebook and that kind of stuff. And uh, like I said, I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon. Okay. And I just say that anyone who has inside information and wants to share it, contact me through my website, cashflow.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm Gary Rathman. It's an economy of one. 
an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Ah, it was a lot of fun talking to Jack Cashel, author of the book TWA 800. Go out and get the book. It's a lot of fun. It's easy to read. Uh, kind of drive you nuts, but it doesn't come across conspiratorial at all. He just kind of lays the facts out there. You know, in carrying on the thought process of the media being the narrative setter or, or messenger for the elite, the people in power, the politicians, you know, the same thing is happening around the new Black Panthers. I remember the Black Panthers of the 60s, and now we have the new Black Panthers. And it's interesting to me, especially since Republican National Convention starts tomorrow in my home state. Ohio. I'm based in Ohio. It's just down the road in Cleveland. I'm not going to go, by the way, just so you know. Uh, Not that that was a concern, but it's interesting what's coming out and what's going to happen. And more interesting to me, what the media is going to say about it. Now, we are going to talk to people and, and I've got friends that are in the broadcasting business that we'll chat with uh, at the convention. But it's going to be I don't want to say a fire keg, but it's going to be a dry forest, if you will, that it only takes a match to light because it's Republican, of course. The conflict in the Republican Party itself is going to cause a lot of tension. People don't want Trump. I mean, I I saw in the Wall Street Journal this last week how uh, the Republicans could still not have Trump as the nominee. There's voters think from Virginia or something that, that are going to vote at the convention that won a court case saying they don't have to vote for the candidate that won the popular vote in their state. So there's going to be a lot of tension there anyway. And then you got you got what happened in Dallas. You got what happened in Louisiana. By the way, there were three or four other attacks on policemen throughout the country since Dallas. So you're going to have a lot of that tension. You got the new... Black Panther Party, which apparently is not condoned by the old Black Panther Party. They're not the same, of course, and don't agree with each other's message necessarily. But you got the new Black Panthers saying they're going to carry guns at their protest in Cleveland. Now, Ohio is a right to carry state. We do have concealed carry laws here and and that kind of stuff. So it's perfectly legal for protesters and and that kind of stuff to carry guns in the state. There's no reason to prohibit them from carrying guns, but it's like anything else. Every action causes a opposite and equal reaction. So if you have the new Black Panthers carrying guns to protect their protesters and you have Black Lives Matter people carrying guns to protect their people, and then you have pro-Trump people carrying guns to protect their people. I mean, you get that many people with that much emotion and that much gunpowder within a certain proximity, you're going to likely have a problem. And uh, I think that 
There probably will be some problems there. There probably will be some arrests. I think the Cleveland security forces are up to the challenge. I think they're prepared. They're trained. They're they're ready to deal and uh, with uh, any issue that comes up and probably uh, deal with it quickly and, and maybe even preempt any kinds of problems there. But quite honestly, that possibility is one of the main reasons I'm not going. One of the things I've learned in life, the way to avoid some bad things happening in your life is not put yourself in a situation where bad things could happen. So there's no reason for me to go to the convention. Anybody I want to talk to can pick up a phone and we can talk that way. But there's no reason for me to be there and experience that kind of stuff in person. It's like Cashel was talking about, the media is carrying the water for these people. And, and I can see where we could have some real issues around the protests, some real possibilities of violence if people are egged on. When you have the Attorney General of the United States, Lorena Lynch, telling the Black Lives Matter people, don't be discouraged. When you have President Obama saying, we are not divided in this country. When you have presumptive Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton blaming white people for part of this problem. When you have, you know, a lady by the name of Kaylin Chaplin James, who is Miss Alabama in 1993, making the statement that the gentleman, if you want to call him that, who murdered cowardly shooting police officers in the back from a sniper position in Dallas, calling him a martyr? Really? A martyr? And then you have Isaiah Crowell, who's a football player in the NFL for the Cleveland Browns, showing a a picture, a video, or whatever you call it, an Instagram, of a guy dressed all in black uh, with a hood slitting the throat of a police officer, and that, that going viral. Now, personally, I think he ought to be drummed out of the NFL and his contract canceled. But he comes back with an apology, which, you know what? He's in a leadership position. Kids, both black and white, look up to him. And this is what he did. And no apology, no amount of a check he writes to anybody is going to unring that bell. He's done it. So Republican National Convention starting tomorrow will be interesting to watch. I'll be watching very closely how the media frames the narrative. And uh, we'll talk about that next week, uh, certainly after the convention. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 